Thank you for tuning in to the audio podcast of Renaissance Church, a new church plant located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please check out our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like more information about joining the launch team of Renaissance, or if you would like information on how you can partner with us to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. Again, it's good to be with you guys here today, um, and I'm happy to just get into uh, the Word, as Dylan said. Um, if you're new here, we're really glad that you can be here as well. Um, as Dylan said, we're, we're uh, just a couple weeks into our series in the book of Mark, and we've called it Follow Jesus. And in it, we're, we're discovering what it means to follow Jesus as we look at the story of his life, death, and resurrection. So again, um, we're excited for you guys to be able to join in with us in that. Uh, and so I actually just want to really quickly just dive into our text because we're, we have a lot to cover today. Um, if you have a Bible, again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there are a few Bibles on the table in the back, and so you can pick one of those up. Um, but if you uh, have one on your phone or if you brought one, then that's great too. Let me actually just begin. I know don't just pray, but we love prayer here, so let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can be here today. Thank you that you love us uh, and that you, you came to us when we didn't deserve it, God, that you sent your son Jesus to die uh, on the cross, and through him we can have uh, a new relationship with you. Thank you that we can find our rest in you. Thank you that you've given us a Sabbath so that we can enjoy you and your creation and that we can um, know more about you. And um, I pray that today you would just be uh, speaking through your word and uh, helping us to, to know and to love you more and know what you've done for us and uh, how we can follow Jesus in all aspects of our life. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. Uh, it's going to be on the screen here as well. And so let's read what it has to say. So it says, again, he, he being Jesus, it says, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, they being the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, he said, come here. And he said to them, he said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It says that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. 
And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make it known. It says he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, son of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the, and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and they were standing outside, and they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, so there is a lot there which we're going to unpack for today. Um, and so I want to begin just by giving us two questions that I'd like for us to answer as we go through our text today. So uh, if you like to take notes, then you are more than welcome to write this down. Um, so, so two questions that I want us to answer from our text, and the first one is this. The first one is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And, and in that, we are going to look at three possibilities that we see from our text. So who is Jesus? And the second one is this. What will our lives look like based on who we believe he is? So what will our lives look like based on who we believe he is? And so we're going to examine the three possibilities of who Jesus is and how those beliefs shape our lives. And so let's begin by answering the question, who is Jesus? And again, I, I want us to look at three possibilities um, so three possibilities of who Jesus is, and this, uh, here, here they are. So um, we can either say that Jesus was mad, bad, or God. Jesus was either mad, bad, or God. And full disclosure, I did not make this up. This is an argument that you can find 
is made by uh, an author named C.S. Lewis. He's the author of the Chronicle, Chronicles of Narnia series, and he's written other books. Um, he writes this in a book that he called Mere Christianity. And he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that, uh, that people say about Jesus. And he says, they would say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the, uh, on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. He says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. He says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not let, left that open for us, and he did not intend to. Um, so that is, that is his argument, and, and it's these three ways that you can see Jesus. So either Jesus wasn't God, and he didn't know, in which he was crazy. Um, he wasn't God, and he did know, in which case he was a liar. Or he was God, and he did know, in which case he obviously is God. And these, there, there are a few ways which this argument has been phrased. One I've heard in the past says he was either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. So if you want to remember it that way, you can. Um, today, like I mentioned, we will say uh, that Jesus was, was either mad, bad, or God. Uh, this argument may sound familiar to you, or it may not. I'm not sure where you're at. But Apart from C.S. Lewis, this is what our text seeks to answer today. So I want us to examine these three options from our text in Mark chapter 3 because this is what we are confronted with in the middle three sections of our text. We're confronted with this question of who is Jesus. And so let's look at where we see this from our passage. First of all, is Jesus mad? So starting in verse 13, as we read, we see Jesus, he appoints these 12 apostles or disciples. He, it says he appointed them, and it lists their names. We see uh, one guy, he gets the nickname of Boanerges, which means son of thunder. Uh, and so if you're looking for baby names, I think son of thunder has kind of a nice ring to it. I'm looking at you, Polinos, right? Boanerges Polino, how about that? I'm just saying it was, it was good enough for Jesus. Um, Anyways, uh, Mark, he mentions three reasons why Jesus appoints these apostles in verse 14. He says, first, he says he appoints them to be with him. Uh, second, that he would send them out to preach. And third, to give them authority to cast out demons. Uh, and that's exactly what they're doing, right? So as they are doing this, as they're healing people, and as they're casting out demons and preaching, it says that crowds, actually great crowds, they're coming from all over the place, right? It says from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edumia and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. If you look on a map, these are all over the place. Um, so from all these places, people are coming to see Jesus and to be healed by him. And you might look at that, you might think that sounds a little bit strange, 
But what is happening here? What we see here is that Jesus is reversing the effects of sin, right? The effects of sin are death and destruction and disease. And, and as these people are simply just touching Jesus, they're getting healed. Things are being restored to how God intended them to be. So Jesus is reversing the effects of sin in people's lives. And from this, we see a glimpse of who Jesus really is and what he came on earth to do, to show us a picture of the kingdom of heaven and to show us who will usher in that kingdom, which is namely Jesus. Uh, but then we see that uh, Jesus' family, he, they hear about this. And what do they say? So let's look at verses 20 and 21. It says, Then he, who is Jesus, he went home, and the crowd gathered again uh, so that they could not even eat. And it says, and, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So what does his family think? They think that he is a madman. They think he's lost his mind because people are saying that he's out there and he's healing people and that he's given uh, 12 guys the authority to cast out demons. And that's a question that we need to ask ourselves today. Is Jesus crazy? Because Jesus claims that he has the power to heal. He claims that he casts out demons, that he has authority over even the spiritual world. And he appointed these 12 apostles for himself to be with him, to teach and to cast out demons. And he claims to be the Son of God. And so if he really thought he could do all of this, if he really thought that he was the Son of God, the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for to redeem the world, and he can't do this, then Jesus is crazy. He really is crazy. There's no other way to put it. If Jesus thought he was the Son of God and he wasn't, then he is a madman. But before we dismiss Jesus as crazy, let's look at our story a little bit closer. What do we see accompanying Jesus throughout this chapter? Two occasions we see crowds, right? We see major crowds. They're so large, in fact, that on one occasion, they're surrounded by so many people that they can't even eat. I don't know if you've ever been around so many people that you can't eat. I haven't. Um, on another occasion, the disciples are worried that they're going to crush Jesus, and so they prepare a boat for him. Even Jesus' family, they can't get through to him because of the crowds. And so why does this matter? Because if Jesus was a phony, if he couldn't heal or cast out demons, there would be no crowd. No one would follow a crazy person. Rather, they would avoid him. Twelve disciples wouldn't follow a madman one who told them that he had the authority to cast out demons if, in fact, he couldn't heal or he has uh, the authority to cast out demons. But, in fact, his works show that he has the authority over all of creation and that people could not, uh, and people could not stay away from him because of the miracles that he was doing. So, question number one, is Jesus mad? Next question is Jesus bad? And this is what the, the Pharisees and the scribes thought. And we have two accounts in this chapter of the Pharisees and scribes opposing the works of Jesus. The first we see at the beginning, the very beginning of the chapter, where Jesus, he heals this man with a withered hand on a Sabbath. Right? So Jesus, he goes into the synagogue, 
he sees this man with a withered hand, and Mark tells us that the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. First of all, what is their main issue here? They've already made up their mind about who Jesus is, right? They're, they're there watching Jesus just to confirm their belief about who he is. And it may not be so much as they're confident about who he is, but they're certainly confident about who he isn't, right? They are confident that he is not the Son of God. He cannot be the Messiah because they're just waiting and watching him to see if he's going to slip up uh, so that they can catch him disobeying the Jewish law. And so Jesus knows this, and so right in front of them, he calls over the man with the withered hand. He says, he, he looks at the, the Pharisees, actually, and he says, uh, what does he say? He says, uh, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? How simple is that, right? This is kind of a freebie. This is your free stamp on, the, on your bingo slide, right? Jesus isn't trying to catch them up here. All he says is, hey, should you do bad things or should you do good things? And they literally have no response. Uh, you don't have to have a master's degree to know the answer to this, right? I can ask my three-year-old daughter the, the, this question, and she would know the right answer. But the Pharisees are so determined to find fault in Jesus that they cannot see the good that Jesus is doing for this man. Their hearts are so hardened by trying to be the most righteous that they can be that they have no compassion for this man with the withered hand. And they can't even see the miracle that's happening right in front of their eyes. What I think is, is fascinating about this, though, is that the Pharisees, they're acting as though their primary concern is keeping God's law, right? They're trying to come across as though their number one concern is observing, uh, observing the Sabbath. But notice this, Jesus doesn't even break the Sabbath. He doesn't even break the letter of the law because Jesus... He doesn't do anything physically to heal this man. He simply tells the man, he says, stretch out your hand, and the man's hand is healed. And so where the Pharisees are concerned with the letter of the law down to the absolute T, Jesus here, he establishes the heart of the law. Because what is the whole point of the Sabbath? Why, why did God give us the Sabbath? The purpose of the Sabbath is for resting and enjoying God and his creation. And what does Jesus do? Jesus makes it so that this man, the man with the withered hand, he is now able to rest. Jesus didn't come to establish his own rest. He came so that we can find our rest in him. He came to do good and to love us and to serve us. And all the Pharisees can see is a bad guy. This, this guy is a rule, rule breaker someone who isn't as good as they are. And, and this is because of their hardness of hearts. We see this again in verse 22. This is our second uh, example of the Pharisees and scribes here. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. So what they're saying is, Jesus doesn't do this by the power of God. He does this by the power of the devil. This is not a good guy. Sure, he may have power, but it's evil power, not good power. And so Jesus asks them, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? 
How does that even make sense, right? How can someone fight against themselves? That literally makes no sense. This would be like me saying, hey, did you guys see the game last night? Like Tom, Br Tom Brady threw for eight touchdowns against the Patriots. You'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. Tom Brady plays for the Patriots. How can he score eight touchdowns against them? I don't know if you, you guys are looking at me like you don't understand sports analogies. Um, I don't have another one for you, sorry. Um, <laughs> Jesus goes, he, he goes on though to tell them this parable about the strong man, right? Um, he, says, he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. So first, who is this, who's the strong man in the story? He's talking about Satan. He says, you can't just walk into his house and take his stuff. He's much stronger than you. First, you have to bind him, and then you can go into his house. Um, and what, what, what's the point of all this, though? Jesus is saying that he is doing this by a power that is much stronger than Satan. He has the power to bind up the prince of demons. He is doing this by God's strength. So Jesus is claiming that he has the authority over even the evil forces of the world because the power in which he casts out the demons comes from God himself. I want to briefly touch on this part here where he talks about blasphemy against the spirits. I feel like it's kind of the elephant in the room. Um, Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. And so what do, we, what do we do with this? This sounds very scary. And it should. There's this one sin that someone can commit that will not be forgiven. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Yeah. And, and I think it's there, in a sense, to make us think. It's certainly there as a caution towards the religious. And so how do we know if we have committed this sin? What even is this sin? What does he mean, blasphemy against the Spirit? Uh, well, as I, I studied this week, I heard a number of different takes on what this could mean, and I'll share with you one of the more prominent views which I heard from a pastor named Mark Dever. And so he says, blasphemy against the Spirit is a hardness of the heart that is willful. So it is recognizing the truth about who Jesus is, but deliberately hardening your heart to it. It's saying, yeah, I know Jesus. I know who Jesus is. I know he is the Son of God but I will never worship him. It is what the demons know of him. They know that Jesus is God, and they will not worship him. And it, it is what Jesus is warning the Pharisees of. He's saying, you are close to committing the, the sin that the devil himself is guilty of, and which won't be forgiven. Um, so what, whether or not the Pharisees are actually guilty of this it is debatable, but we see here that at least their actions, they prompt Jesus to warn them. Their hard hearts towards Jesus cause them to see the good that he's doing, and as he's healing people, and as he is casting out demons, and they say, uh, of all this, they say, this man isn't the son of God, he's evil. Uh, one thing I'll say about this as well is if that you have truly put your faith in Jesus and in his righteousness alone to save you, then you will not be found guilty of the sin. And your sins will be forgiven because Jesus has paid the penalty for them when he died on the cross. 
Jesus says that all sins will be forgiven those who put their faith in him. So if you acknowledge that it is not by your own righteousness, but by Jesus alone, then you will not be found guilty of this sin. Because you know that Jesus is the Son of God and his Spirit lives in you, giving you the ability to follow him. Last, we ask this question, uh, is Jesus God? And we look at another case where Jesus is healing people and he's casting out demons. And we see again that there's this massive crowd. And we talked about this before, that it's so big that they're worried that they're going to crush him and his disciples. And they prepare a boat. And here's the key verse, though. The key verse is in verse 11. And it says this. It says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Even the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. They know that he has authority over whatever they do. They know that he has the power to heal and to save, and yet, like we talked about before, they refuse to follow him. The good news for us, though, is unlike the demons, it is not too late for us. We can still turn to him and follow him no matter what we thought of him in the past. Our sins can be forgiven because of his death on the cross. I'm going to read for us a little bit about what Mark writes uh, in chapter 16. This is what he writes at the death of Jesus. Sorry, this is Mark 15. He says, uh, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. This is when he's on the cross. It says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So this Roman centurion, he was someone who at least watched Jesus as he died right in front of him. At worst, he helped nail him to the cross and participated in crucifying Jesus himself. And Jesus, as, as he dies, he, uh, the centurion, he sees his mistake. He says, truly, this man was the Son of God. The Gospel of Luke, it says, at this moment, he praised God. So even for the part that he played in the death of Christ, Jesus welcomes this man into his family because he recognizes that he is the Son of God and he turns from his sin rather than hardening his heart towards him. And our sins, no matter what they are, they will be forgiven by Jesus if we will repent of our sin like the centurion, if we will recognize Jesus as God and turn and follow him. It is because of his grace towards us that we can be forgiven, not by us trying harder to be better. And so I want us to, to finish our time by looking at what our lives will look like based on what we believe about who Jesus is. Because there are clear actions that each of these groups take based on what they believe about Jesus, right? And if you're here thinking, well, this probably doesn't apply to me. Of course, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Well, I want you to reconsider, especially if you think that Jesus is the Son of God. This part is for you. Because who is Jesus talking to here? He's talking to the religious people and his family. These are the people who knew, Je- who, who knew the most about God 
and those who were the closest to Jesus, his family. Who isn't mentioned here? Secular people. This surely applies to them as well, but he's not talking to people who don't think they know who he is. He's talking about the people who think that they know him the best. And so we have uh, three reactions to who Jesus is. So first, um, if you believe Jesus is mad, you will say, let's hide him. If you believe Jesus is mad, you will say, let's hide him. If you believe Jesus is bad, you will say, let's destroy him. If you believe he's bad, you'll say, let's destroy him. And finally, if you believe Jesus is God, you will say, let's share him. If you believe he is God, then you will say, let's share him. First, who says that Jesus is mad? His own family, yeah. The, the people who were the closest to him, his mother and his brothers. That's what we see here in verse 21. It says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they, were, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And it wasn't enough, so it wasn't enough that these massive crowds thought that, they could he, thought that he could heal them. It wasn't enough that Jesus is performing miracles and casting out demons. His family says, no, this man is crazy. They say, bring him home before he embarrasses himself and us anymore. Later in this chapter, it says that his mother and his brothers, they come to get him. And they're standing outside behind this crowd that is following him, and they're calling for him. And it's not because that they want to follow him. It's because they're ashamed of him. And Jesus, what does he do? He looks at the crowd of people that are around him, and he says, these people are my real mother, brothers, and sisters, those who do the will of God, those who follow me, those who are not ashamed of me. This is my true family. So if you will not do the will of God, if you are ashamed of Jesus, if instead of making Jesus known, you try to hide him, then Jesus says, you are not my family. Even his actual blood family were included in this group for a period of time. Followers of Jesus, followers of Christ are Jesus' family because they have had their sins paid for by Jesus and have been adopted as brothers and sisters into his family. They will say, I will do the will of God. I will follow him. And so if we think that Jesus is mad, we will hide him. The second group here uh, are those who think that he is bad. And in this chapter of Mark, these are the super religious people. Those, these are those who think that they are closer to God because of their own righteousness. What they say is, let's destroy him. These people, the people in Mark, the Pharisees and the scribes, they literally conspired about how to kill Jesus. Uh, but more importantly for us to understand, though, is their objective was to destroy his reputation, at least. By, and they would do this by any means necessary. So they didn't want him to be known as the Son of God, despite witnessing his power firsthand. In our story here, they say that he is the devil. How does this apply to us, though? One way we can try to destroy Jesus is by representing him falsely to the world with our, wor with our words. So we can try to destroy Jesus by representing him falsely to the world with our words. For example, by saying Jesus is anything other than the Son of God, by saying that he was just a good teacher or that somehow he obtained godhood by being more spiritual, um, 
These are misrepresentations of who Jesus is because they are contrary to who Jesus tells us that he is. So they're an attempt to make Jesus into who we want him to be, not who he tells us he is. And this is the exact same thing that the Pharisees do. They harden their hearts towards him, and they make him into whoever they want him to be, the bad guy in this case. So claiming that Jesus is anything but who he says he is is pharisaical. And so we can try to destroy Jesus by representing him falsely to the world with our words. On the other hand, we can try to destroy Jesus by representing him falsely to the world by our actions. And here's what I mean by that. If we say that we are truly followers of Christ and yet we unrepentantly live contrary to his word, we represent him falsely to the world. If we say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but we excuse our sin as if God doesn't really care about it, we are misrepresenting who Jesus is. It's as though we're saying, Jesus doesn't really care about how I live my life. He doesn't care about my sexuality or my honesty or my work ethic. He just wants me to be happy. So if we continue to live in sin without a care of turning away from it, we are saying Jesus condones this and we make Jesus into someone who he isn't. We destroy him for, this, for this, these other things which we prefer. So if we think that he is bad, we will try to destroy him. Finally, if we think he is God, we will share him. We saw earlier that even the spirits, the evil spirits, they say he is the son of God. And yet, strangely enough, uh, when they do say this, Jesus at this point, he strictly tells them not to tell anyone. And this kind of seems contrary to the point here. But the question is then, why would Jesus tell him, tell them not to make him known? Why, why does Jesus tell them not to say anything? Because the good news isn't miracles of healing. It isn't casting out demons. For them, this is good news, but it is not the good news. It is not the gospel. The good news is the whole story of Jesus. It's in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. It's that Jesus came to do what we could not do on our own, atone for our own sins. The gospel is that we have fallen short of what is demanded of us by God's law, by sinning against God, but that God in his goodness, he lovingly came to earth as Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins by dying on a cross in our place. As Christians, we look at that and we say, this is what justifies me in front of God. It is Jesus's righteousness accredited to us when we believe in him. That is our hope. So when Jesus says, he, he tells them not to make it known, it is because this has not fully been accomplished yet, right? He's still on earth. He's still living. He has not died on the cross yet. The good news that Jesus has died for our sins hasn't happened yet when he says this. But after it does, after Jesus dies on the cross and he's raised from the dead, uh, showing his authority over even death itself, he appears to the disciples, and what does he do? Well, well let's look at it from Mark chapter 16. Uh, it says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven. There are eleven now. 
that Judas has betrayed Jesus. Uh, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. When we believe that Jesus is God, we will share him because we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. So how do you need to respond to the good news of Jesus? What is your response? Will you hide Jesus because you think all of this is crazy? Is Jesus mad because he claimed to be the Son of God and is not? Will you try to destroy Jesus by making him into someone who he's not? Or will you say, I have come to know that Jesus is the Son of God and that my righteousness can't be found in anyone or anything but him? And this good news is something that the whole world needs to hear. And so, as we close, I want to urge you, please do not harden your hearts to the good news of Jesus Christ, but let the grace of God transform your life and let us draw near to him like we see with faith in with the man with the withered hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you that when we tried to hide you, we tried to destroy you, God, that you still loved us. And God, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Convict anyone here who does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God today, that he truly is God. I ask that you would soften our hearts. Make us not like the Pharisees who have hard hearts and who oppose you and try to destroy you, but make us, give us soft hearts so that we will see who you are and will uh, desire with all of our hearts to share who you are with the world. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.